the church was the kind of main institutional resistance to the human rights abuses under the military regime there. The story in Argentina was not so good. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is about politics, society, culture, and religion, how they mix or don't mix. And before I introduce our special guest today, I have a co-host, a special ring-in co-host, Matthew Tan. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Peter. Thanks very much for having me. That's all right. Um, Matthew of our Zombie Jesus episode fame. Uh, that was an excellent episode, and I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. And also in the studio, William Kavanagh, professor in Catholic studies at DuPaul University. That's right. Yeah. Before we get started, let's just a reminder that if you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we get, the more people get to know us. Today's topic is society, culture, politics and religion and we're particularly looking into that topic today because William Kavanagh has written uh, sorry can I call you Bill Bill please. that would be yeah. much shorter than yeah, yeah. that <laughs> yeah. we're, we're basically <laughs> looking into this because of many different books and essays that you've had published about this um, topic in very from various angles uh, perhaps we could start with where it all began can you talk about that first essay in grad school that that, that sort of kicked things off oh I was doing a course on um, uh, political liberalism and uh, in the political science department and kept reading that um, liberalism came out of uh, the fact that you couldn't have public religion without people killing one another. Right. And the wars of religion in Europe were the, um, that was the kind of boogeyman. Right. And so I uh, started writing about this and looking at the history and discovered that Catholics were killing Catholics and Protestants were killing Protestants in the so-called wars of religion. So I thought, hmm, something else might be going on here. <laughs> yes. And so um, uh, I started looking at the the whole creation of the concept of religion, which comes about in the um, about the same period. Oh, really? And so, what did they have before that? They obviously had some kind of thing we describe as religion before that. So, yeah, religion was. I mean, it, it comes from a Latin term. Uh, religio, and it basically means any kind of um, serious sort of commitment. You would say religio mihi est, that's religion to me, in right. roughly the same way uh, that we use the term when we say, oh, um, you know. My personal faith. My yeah, Or something like, um, you know, when you say he reads the New York Times religiously. Oh, okay, um, so that, habitually. That sort um, of thing. Um, with dedication. Right, yeah. Mm. Um, but it wasn't something that uh, necessarily referred to the gods. And so it only takes on that um, that term later. And so in the Middle Ages, it's a term that refers to devotion, um, of uh, usually directed towards gods. But the this distinction between religion and not religion, so the religious and the secular, that only comes about in the late medieval, early modern period. So it's not identical to the idea of the separation of church and state then? No, no, not at all. Um, uh, those are, are different things. Right, because so, I was going to say the church and state thing goes all the way back to David and Nathan. And the, sure, and the whole, yeah. Or even before that with Saul. But uh, so if we're talking about um, not being church and state, and that clearly there were people we would describe as religious well before the Middle Ages. Sure. So what's changed when we get to that region why did they feel the need or what has developed if you like philosophically to get us to that point right so the difference then is something uh, is a separation between two spheres of life 
one which is religious and one is secular. And the secular includes things like politics and economics and so on. And that's that's what's new. The, the idea that so you before could, that they thought religion basically included all of those things. Sure. Or perhaps all of those things included religion. Sure, absolutely. Okay. So you've got, um, so Caesar is a god. Um, you've got distinction between uh, church authorities and civil authorities, but you don't have a distinction between some people that um, uh, take care of the god business and other people that don't. The kings were, you know, invested liturgically and so on. Right. So, um, you don't have these kinds of distinctions until uh, the modern period, and it, it comes about as a result of this, um, you know, centuries-long contest between the civil and the ecclesiastical authorities, which has been going on since, you know, the fourth century when Constantine the emperor becomes a Christian. Um, and so there's this struggle, and eventually the, the civil authorities win. And so religion is this category of things that now the church can take care of, which is essentially separate from politics and Right. Uh, economy and all of those kinds of things. So you, it's a way of taking the church and saying, you go over you there. You go over there. With all business. those complicated exactly. and, and seemingly pointless arguments that you're having. Right. And lots of frustration comes out as you see history unfold with the princes who go, look, get these religious guys just need to sort it out, get along and stop interfering with my rule kind of thing. Right, right. Um, although, the, you know, princes for a long time still maintain that they are in some way responsible for God's reign on earth. Right. Um, but uh, eventually it becomes this kind of thing where you're going to take all of the God business and put it off to the <laughs> side. Right? So, so would it be fair to say that in this conception of religion, um, religion is sort of seen as a, a category or, so, or a kind of naughty corner um, designated by the princes to, you know, put the church in "quote unquote" its place. A naughty corner. I like that exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the punishment corner. You you have um, children fighting on the playground, and so you separate them. Um, and that's the tale of the wars of religion that um, suddenly you have Catholics and Protestants in the 16th century, they can't stop killing one another, and so you need to take the whole business and put it off um, to the side. Mm. And that um, is really not historically what no. was happening at all, but this is a myth that then um, gets perpetuated as a way yeah. of um, uh, reinforcing the status quo. I, I, came, I was a Lutheran minister for, some, for a little while, and um, even while really reading the histories as a Lutheran, uh, you, you'd see that princes were swapping sides and religions e equally just with political alliances. Sure. And, and it was completely about using Luther as a kind of a banner for the rebellion against the emperor. And, sure. And the others using Catholics as a banner for their particular cause. So, yeah. Right. So you have Cardinal Richelieu um, making a pact with the Lutherans, uh, the Swedes. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the Thirty <laughs> Years' War is largely uh, the two Catholic dynasties fighting one, one another, the Bourbons and the Habsburgs. You know, right. So. Yeah. Just those dang Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that you wrote in um, in in that first article. Um, and can you remind us what the um, art, uh, title of that article was, just for the sake of our listeners who want to do further research into this? It's called A Fire Strong Enough to Consume the House. Right. And you expanded on this um, idea in in. Uh, into a book-length study, didn't you, in um, uh, The Myth of Religious Violence. Right, right. right. Was there something in um, in that book that um, you did not do in your earlier work that you actually want, you know, you thought was a significant contribution that you wanted to expand upon? 
Sure. So the Wars of Religion is chapter three in mm-hmm. that book. And so it's just one of uh, four chapters. Sure. And I kind of go into the history much more in depth. So there's 300 footnotes in that chapter and so sure. on. Um, <laughs> but that's just chapter three. Um, mm-hmm. And so the rest of the book takes on this idea more broadly that religion has this tendency to cause violence. And mm-hmm. so um, in the first chapter, I go through nine different arguments that religion has this tendency because it's inherently absolutist, it's mm. inherently divisive, it's inherently irrational. Mm. And look at lots of different examples of this sort of thing and then begin to ask the question, well, what what do we mean when we say religion? And so chapter two is this genealogy of the term religion where I kind of trace the whole development uh, of this. And then chapter three on the wars of religion and chapter four is about how it's used um, today. So the first three chapters show how incoherent this division between religion and not religion is and how flexible these terms are. And so you get uh, Christopher Hitchens, for example, famous new atheist, his book, God is Not Great, um, uh, an indictment of all the horrible things that religion has done. Mm. Um, but then he, it's almost a given. People can get away with saying oh, religion yeah. causes all, so much violence. Oh, absolutely. It's, never I mean, challenged. it's just a truism. And so, but then he, he says, okay, well, what about um, Stalin and Mao and Kim Jong un and so on? And he says, um, it, because this is a kind of inconvenient fact that, you know, more than 100 million people were killed by. Marxist atheist regimes, mm. um, and so he says, "Well, that's religion too." All right. And so totalitarianism is inherently a religious thing, even if it's atheist. So if and you so, believe in anything, even if it's not God, right? Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. So um, except, he, I mean, that would be to to say that would be more consistent. Um, I mean, what, what it is basically is just uh, the distinction between religious and secular is the distinction between things that Hitchens doesn't like and right. the things that Hitchens does like. Mm. Which it's, it sounds awfully like a religion. It's just that he's making up as he goes along. It, sure, right, <laughs> depending on how you define uh, religion, right? Yeah. So, so it seems like the mantra is, if something happens that I don't like, it's religion. Right, right. yeah, okay. yeah, it, it, yeah, it, more um, or less. Uh, just to change tracks a little bit, in in the later uh, portions of that book, you also um, explore um, more contemporary notions of what we might consider to be um, um, secular activities to actually look at some uh, activities like sport and like nationalism. Um, if I remember re- Sorry, uh, correctly- Sorry, sport and nationalism came a bit too close together there. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are completely separate right. activities, <laughs> especially come the Olympics. Um, yeah. w- uh, one of the questions um, that, that was an, an interesting um one of the issues that was explored there that I found interesting was that there are um, some things happening in the world out there um, that we would pursue with the same amount of devotion that we would um, associate with religion, but because they don't actually have a religious ad- uh, aspect to it or recognizably religious aspect to it, we sort of like siphon, uh, put that to one corner, call that a secular thing and therefore not lump it together with religion. Is that is that a, a fair... Um, a fair summary of that of that part of the book. Yeah, I think that's right. Right. Um, I mean, there are there's actually um, all kinds of debate in the scholarly community about the definition of religion, mm-hmm. and um, what most people consider to be religion is things that have to do with God and gods. Um, 
but there's uh, so that's uh, religion defined as based on the substance of one's beliefs. But there's a whole other um, uh, theory of religion called functionalism, which says basically, look, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, <laughs> then it's a duck, right? So there's all these other things that don't necessarily believe in, uh, you know, have a belief in God, but function in precisely the same way in people's lives. So things so like nationalism. Have you ever been to an Aussie so rules match? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seriously, exactly. though, because Aussie rules match, you have up to 90, 80, 90,000 people in it. Like, the average crowd was f- over 40,000 per game yeah. uh, last season. They have thousands, tens of thousands of people in this stadium. You can't run the game without the umpires, but everybody hates the umpires, which sounds awfully like priests. You know, the, the, the rule, <laughs> they need to be there. They, everyone follows the instructions, but they all dislike the instructions. Yeah. And the, the players have to play the rules. And there's all kinds of fervor involved in it. And everyone's dressing up in the... Oh, know, it's very liturgical. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. liturgical. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, the, and the intensity of conviction and belief um, is just in, in, incredible. Sure, sure. And there's all kinds of different um, examples of the celebrity, mm, yes. of course, um, and the kind of uh, celebrity relics um, that, you know, things that have come in contact with, you know, something that Elvis touched or drove mm. or something, you know, commands uh, huge prices. And Can we come back to the, the Christopher Hitchens example you gave? Um, also, another fellow who's pushed the same line of religion and violence is Dawkins, and he seems to push an idea of science as being the alternative, but he ends up creating almost a science, a religion based on science. Sure. Um, this is almost blind faith in scientists to be firstly altruistic and to find the truth, etc. Tracy Rowland wrote a book, and in one of her um, book chapters, uh, it was on culture and the Thomas tradition, I mm-hmm. think, and one of her chapters she explores the idea of um, uh, the cult of um, the expert, Right. So we've we've almost created a secular religion where the expert is our high priest or the or at least our magisterium. Right. Yeah. A lot of it depends on what you're trying to get from science. Science does a lot of things really well. Right. Um, if it becomes a kind of all-encompassing uh, life view, um, then it can become something which is analogous to um, the usual things that we call mm. religion. One of the uh, interesting aspects that you you spoke about quite early on when I was a PhD student, um, just a full disclosure to our listeners, Bill was kind enough to be my um, doctoral examiner. Um, and he was also kind enough to to employ me for a year um, over in Chicago. So consequently, I'm a fanboy and have no agenda whatsoever. Um, <laughs> oh, it um, makes me feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the first books that I um, read when I was a graduate student was your book, Theopolitical Imagination in which you talked about uh, the, I guess the, the cultural and political um, uh, potency of things that we might otherwise consider to be, you know, quote unquote religious. So I guess the, the, um, the presumption was that because there is this divide between the religious and the secular, the things that we do on Sunday have absolutely no relevance whatsoever from the, uh, to the things that we do between Monday and Saturday. You, and you seem to like bust that um, in uh, some of the segments in Theopolitical Imagination. And one of the key ideas that I got from that book was that um, in, uh, it comes out from the subtitle of the, one of the editions of that book, which is the idea that the liturgy is a political act. Mm. Can you just sort of give us a, a, a quick summary of what exactly you mean when you say the political? If uh, religion 
as um, as you explore it doesn't actually respect this um, religious secular divide, then what exactly do we mean when we say that um, liturgy is a political act? You, yeah, good question. And can it's you a, summarize that in 25 words or less? It's <laughs> <laughs> not fair, you had more than 25 <laughs> Right, I mean, part of what I'm trying to do is just um, look at uh, how flexible these terms religion and politics are. So in, in some ways, to call something a political act as opposed to something which is not political, you have to always kind of ask what's being excluded, what kind mm. of what, what what sort of power is 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 being instantiated there. So when we usually think of political, we usually think in the narrow terms of having to do with nation states and governments in that sense. But there's a broader sense, you know, when Aristotle talks about politics, there's a broader sense of politics in the terms of the life of the city, the polis. And um, organizing bodies, how how people organize themselves or are organized. Mm, so we talk about office um, politics, or right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which can sound pejorative, but doesn't necessarily uh, need to be. Yeah, and so just because it's awful doesn't mean it has to be. <laughs> Unlike church politics, which is nourishing to the soul. Oh, right. There's no mm. no such thing as mm. church politics. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> well, see, it's interesting. Sorry, you finish your thought, and I'll come back to that. Yeah. So to to talk about the Eucharist as a political act in that sense is to say that there's a certain way in which um, the Eucharist gathers bodies in space and uh, has an, att- an attempt, at least, to kind of conform us in a certain way to Christ, to uh, a kind of public body um, in this way. And so, which ought to have kind of ramifications for how we live in the world and how we organize the world. And that's what I mean uh, by that. So my first book is called Torture and Eucharist, and it's about um, the use of torture under the Pinochet regime in Chile and the um, ways in which the Eucharist was also kind of drawn upon in resistance to the military regime in Chile by the Catholic Church there. So the Eucharist became a very strong political um, entity in itself. Right, Mm -hmm. right, yeah. So you have the torture is this kind of movement of trying to atomize uh, the body politic, kind of uh, divide divide it, um, individualize it, keep people from... uh, associating with one another, the whole kind of neoliberal Hmm. regime that was installed by the military regime there. And Eucharist is a way of uh, bringing people together, gathering them Hmm. uh, in this way. It seemed to happen the sim, well, perhaps not similar, but parallel sort of thing in Poland when Pope John Paul II was involved in the solidarity movement. The communists kept trying to crush the religious element and and sort of make it the state, their conduit, if you like, of their religious urge or their belief system, and that kept coming back to the faith, and the faith in Poland was so strong because of the, they, that was what unified them, and, right. and yeah, it ended up the wall falling. So. And, just, and, and while we are on the, the topic of um, the book torture and Eucharist, so you uh, explore that idea, not just that the Eucharist is a political act, but that tor- the act of torture, which is we normally associate to, to politics is also in and of itself a religious and liturgical act, would that be fair? Right, yeah, I call mm. it a kind of anti-liturgy That's um, right. in some mm-hmm. sense because you're you're kind of doing this ritual movement on, on bodies in order to have this um, kind of public uh, effect. People think of torture as 
something that's done to extract information. And one of the things I found, um, I, I, so I lived in Chile under the, in a poor neighborhood under the military regime. And one of the things that I found both then and then later on doing research is um, the way in which torture is the creation of an imagination. It really has very little to do with gathering information. It's, it's almost, more about it's terrorism, really. It's exactly A kind of spreading of, fear and anxiety yeah. in the um, mm. in the body politic through these kinds of um, techniques acts. on on bodies, and mm. and they're it's largely symbolic. Mm. Yeah. And, and and a small amount of particular violence ends up having a massive effect because of the way it's done and the way it's promulgated and, right, and that sort of thing. Right. Can I bring you back to something, Matthew, you raised the issue of um, the liturgy being a political act, but we've already looked at in in your um, Redeeming Flesh um, book on the zombie mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, I'm not marketing this, by the way. No, no, it's all right, <laughs> but we've looked at that in our episode on the, the zombie Jesus, that the more religion gets shoved into the sort of the private sphere and you're allowed to believe anything you like as long as it doesn't actually affect anything, um, and they push and push and push, what we're seeing is that religious themes, particularly Christian themes, are surfacing in popular culture. Right. And mm. it's, it seems to be that you're saying, well, it was there all along. Right. I think that's mm. right. I mean, it, it's like Chesterton said or is reputed to have said, when people stop believing in God, they'll believe in anything. And right. I think that's really true. There's something, there's a, a, a kind of inherently um, worshipping aspect. P human beings are inherently worshipping creatures. And if they don't worship God, then it's their worship is going to kind of fall on all kinds of items that are not now this, God. This brings us to some another theme that you've brought up. And um, perhaps if I can uh, bring that out a little bit more. You talk about idols in our culture and is this what you're talking about that we've exactly. uh, when we move away from worshiping consciously working worshiping god or something of that nature we end up focusing on other things which then become our idols what do we mean then by idols right so um i mean it's so this is the the book i'm working on now is on idolatry i've been telling people the the book the myth of religious violence is aimed at a secular audience there's no explicit theology in it and the basic argument is, look, people kill for all sorts of things. They kill for gods, they kill for nations, they kill for oil, they kill for land, you know, et cetera. And self-interest. Right. Um, and so um, the idea then is that it's the, it's the same sort of biblical idea of idolatry, that people's worship falls on all kinds of created things that are not God. And so now I'm kind of doing the, the theology behind that right. and looking uh, at what the Bible says uh, about idols. And so idols are basically things, creatures uh, instead of the creator, mm. um, think created things in which people put um, an inordinate, inordinate amount of trust to kind of uh, redeem them, deliver them in, in whatever sense that might be. So we, we've seen, I mean, everyone can understand like someone making an idol of money because there's a kind of a direct self-interest involved in it. Yeah. You can understand them idolizing sport or something like that because it's very much a tribal thing. We, we've criticized some of the other regimes like the, the Pinochet regime and, the, and some of the communists who, who try and make their ideal they force everyone to, to follow their ideal. And we're seeing some of that come out of China and their, you know, their camps of re-education of people who don't follow the ideal. But how much are we seeing that in modern politics? Because when you talked about idol, idolizing an ideal as if it's going to save you, when you look at tribalism in politics and you say people, say for instance, hold up the national flag and say this is awesome and this ideal, and there's almost no substance to it. 
Um, they're, they're sort of almost looking towards something that's insubstantial. Yeah, there doesn't need to be substance uh, to it. Uh, <laughs> to an all, idol. Right, yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that you find in the biblical. Or self-interest, um, apparently. Oh, right. Yeah, no, a, a lot of times, you know, worshiping an idol is directly against one's own self-interest. Right. You know, it's the kind of dedication to a cause. It's the willingness to die for the flag. You know, um, I, you think about the poor suckers that were sent into battle with nothing but a flag, you know, and not even a gun, but they're kind of willing to to kind of die for the flag. And and so it doesn't have to be um, in self-interest at all. Um, and in in some ways, it it mimics um, the very best in human nature the the willingness to sacrifice oneself for something higher. Um, mm. But of course, the key question is what? And right? is it what higher? is that higher <laughs> thing? And, and is it higher? Exactly. Yeah, mm. something larger uh, than than oneself. Mm. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that you'd spent some time in Chile. Uh, one, it seems to have been reading your bio. It seems to have been a, a formative experience. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because you you spent some time in those neighbourhoods. Was that voluntary? You went, or a family, or some other connection there? It was. It was a volunteer program with the Holy Cross Fathers, um, who run the University of Notre Dame in the United States. That's where I was an undergraduate, and so I actually did two tours of duty with them. One in Colorado for a year. And then one in Chile for two and a two two years and some. Um, and, and what so were you doing there? Living in a um, poor neighborhood of Santiago, um, my main responsibility was a cooperative building project, kind of a Habitat for Humanity sort of thing, yep. where people would uh, get together and build uh, small two-room structures for you know kind of barn raising style, where everybody uh, on one weekend would get together and mm. put up one of these. Uh, structures and then next weekend it would be somebody else's uh, house and so on with a lot of um, partying as well so you'd work all day <laughs> somebody would turn on the radio get a couple of bottles of pisco and we would dance until right. 3 a.m which made it difficult to get going again the next morning <laughs> but, um, yeah. but obviously the experience has um, profoundly affected you can you talk a little bit about some of the parts of that experience which we wouldn't uh, that was particularly contrasted to say for example Example your your life in America. Oh, the contrast was pretty um, stark. Um, so it the poverty was um, striking. You know, there are a lot of people with um, without food. Um, it was a time in which the military regime was cracking down on um, any kind of dissent, um, but street protests had broken out uh, in the latter part of the military uh, regime's rule. And so they agreed to have a plebiscite uh, in 1988, um, which was a, a vote on eight years of eight years more for Pinochet or free elections. Um, so very conflictive um, tear gas, um, bullets, all, all those sorts of things. Um, New people, next door neighbor had been disappeared. Um, uh, so, um, sorry. You might, you um, yeah. When we talk about crackdowns in Australia, we, you know, we're thinking about someone putting in an extra law or maybe a bit more taxes. In these sorts of countries, you're talking about people disappearing and and torture, as you mentioned earlier. It's right. It's something we we struggle to understand really here. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the the poverty thing. We we think of poverty as someone who's you know maybe on the the basic living allowance or something. But you're t- you know poverty in those countries is absolute. Like it's literally unable to eat. 
and, and nowhere to live, that kind of thing. Mm. How do you think that's influenced your um, your writing and your your thought processes from there? So what's the is there something that's the key sort of? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I went to Latin America looking for a church that made a difference in the way people lived. So I was raised a fairly conventional Catholic in a suburb of Chicago, and my faith was important to me. But um, in a lot of ways, it was an optional extra. And so I kind of went to Latin America looking for people that were living this out in a way in which it made a, a serious difference. And I th- and found that in, in Chile. The, the story in Chile is a fairly happy one for the uh, Catholic Church, although happy, I'm not sure, is the right word. But, um, <laughs> uh, but the church was the kind of main institutional resistance to the human rights abuses under the military regime right. there. The story in Argentina was not so good. So the faith was political. Um, uh, it was. It was. Although um, that word would never be used because right. that's what the military regime accused them of doing, right? right? Mm-hmm. Of combining religion and politics. But it's always, but Christianity is always um, involved in some sense in politics, just in because we are mm. enfleshed human beings and we have to be concerned about these kinds it's of things. It's interesting when the church stands up or any person stands up for the rights of an individual human being, we often get accused of playing politics. In the last year or so, we've had some votes on things such as abortion, euthanasia, things like that. And when the church has said, no, every human life has dignity and value, oh, you're playing politics, you should stay out of politics. You know, well, hang on, these are human beings we're talking about. Right. And we're only, we're not saying any, any particular party should be voted for. We're simply saying human beings need to be dignified and, and treated with the dignity which God has given them. I think uh, this kind of ties in with that um, that anti-liturgical theme that, that Bill is, was talking about. We were seeing in um, it seems as if that we we are entering into a phase whereby everything is starting to become privatized, including um, political discourse. Um, is that a fair thing to say, uh, Bill, in light, of, in light of what you have written? Everything is becoming privatized. I suppose that's what um, saying Christianity is political is mm-hmm. a way of kind of resisting that. Right. Um, but again, we need to make sure that people understand um, that when we say that, um, it doesn't necessarily mean politics in the way we usually think of Correct. it. Support for a particular political party. Mm. Or in the case of, say, some some extreme proponents of liberation theology ended up picking up guns and sort of joining politics by means of um, violence. But, you, but what we're talking about here, at least from what I'm seeing from your stuff, is that the theology of the church and their understanding of, of God and, and human beings has implications which flow naturally into their, their logical implications of, of what we believe in about right. human beings. Right, and I think that's that's really important for our life as Christians, uh, and there's different ways it can be politicized. Um, and I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it, it's unhelpful to use the term uh, politics in this sense, um, because oftentimes what it, it can mean for the church is that the church will throw in its lot with one political party even when they say they're not. Right. And um, and doing so in a kind of calculated way where, you know, we, we, we begin to make calculations in terms of uh, the politics as the art of the possible. And so, so we other words, say, well... These guys are slightly less rubbish than the other guys. Right. And so we're going to keep silent on these issues and we're going to press right. these issues and we're not 
explicitly going to endorse a particular party, but really, in fact, we're going to yeah. be putting the thumb on the scale for for one party. And that, I think, is <laughs> is unhelpful. And so part of the thing that I'm trying to, ta- to, to do is to get people away from thinking of the entirety of our politics being with tied up in the nation state and governance mm. and think in terms more of the church as this community where we uh, go out and try to heal the world um, and not simply, you know, when, when we think about what's wrong with the world, we don't only think, well, we've got to lobby our, our you know, elected representatives to do something about this, that the church itself then becomes this community of healing out in the world uh, in a way that, that tries to heal some of the distortions that are created by nation states mm. and corporations and other forms of mm. gathering people. And if, if we're brave enough to, maybe this is just my politics coming in, but if we're brave enough to call all of the political parties out on what they fail to do, um, then it might be that we don't have any options available to us, but we might, if there's enough of us demanding options, then eventually someone will have to put up an option that's actually more palatable. I think that's possible too. Um, and and we should maintain that sort of hope for the electoral process, I suppose. But in the meantime, I think we really ought to feel homeless in regards to electoral politics and um, think more in terms of what can we do directly um, instead of simply, you know, mm. uh, uh, throwing our lot in with one of the political parties and all of the kind of, um, <laughs> you know, compromises that they have to make. Or giving up on them completely. Right. Um, the... Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about that as you spoke and thinking I referred to AFL, Aussie Rules, as being this kind of pseudo-religious activity. But in so- certain sense, politics itself, so the, the art of politics and the public actors of politics can become a religion in itself. So the all of the, the various political parties, the setup, as you know, if, you, if you've done any study on the, uh, the Nazi regime and how they use the propaganda to whip up the frenzy for mm-hmm. their particular ideals go and sit in on some of these political rallies, you see you see parallels. I'm not saying they're all Nazis, but you see parallels in the fact that they're very, very focused on almost an undivided adoration for their ideal and, and pushing it the other way. Oh, we don't have those problems in the United oh, States. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Aussies are a bit too cynical for that to work here. So we, That's tend, right. we tend to work on tearing each other down uh, until there's no one left standing. Mm-hmm. In uh, one of your books, um, Being Consumed, you made a mention in one of your chapters that um, in contrast to the I- this popular idea that pop culture is actually a form of materialism, you actually argue that it's a form of anti-materialism, that it's not materialist enough. Mm-hmm. Um, can you uh, sort of elaborate on that a little bit, on what you mean by uh, consumerism and pop culture and economics more generally mm-hmm. uh, not being materialist enough? If you think about materialism, you usually think of the kind of clinging to material objects. And a consumer society uh, is not content with clinging to particular material objects because in order to keep the economy moving, you have to keep wanting new and different things. And so consumerism is not just attachment to things. It's it, it has this moment of detachment, this necessary moment of detachment where you buy something, you become disenchanted with it, and you go back to the store and or back online and get something else. So and we're in love with finding something new all the time. Right, yeah, yeah, the pursuit of novelty. So um, it's not 
uh, buying but shopping that's mm. kind of at the spiritual heart of of consumerism. A little story or two on this. In one of the large theology classes, I asked the question, what would happen if we all stopped buying things we don't need? And uh, it was a rhetorical question, but several of the biz- business students in the front row had a near, near fit. <laughs> they said, and they actually said out loud, if we stopped buying things we don't need, Australia's economy would collapse. Yeah. And I thought this was a bit ridiculous. So I went and talked to our economists and they said, oh yeah, yeah. with most, <laughs> almost all of our economy is based on think, us constantly needing and buying things we don't need. Yeah, yeah, and so in that sense, it's really, you know, it's this distinction between use value and exchange value. Uh, use value, the things that we actually need and use, um, and exchange value, what the the what they can be exchanged for, and also this kind of higher um, symbolic um, purpose that um, that material objects serve for us. And so you think about Naomi Klein's. Uh, work on the brand now and how brands over the last few decades have taken on more importance than the actual objects uh, themselves. And so... So what brand you're wearing is more important than the actual value of the clothes. Right, right. And people, there there was actually some research done uh, by Israeli and American uh, researchers that was published in the journal called Marketing Science. And the article is called Brands, the Opiate of the Non-Religious Masses. And what they found was that um, people that are more attached to what were considered traditional religions, Christianity, Judaism, etc., are less inclined to um, uh, focus on brands, to be Mm. brand conscious, Mm. and and vice versa. Mm. And so they concluded empirically that... um, uh, brands are a kind of substitute for uh, traditional religions. It's the, it's this way of attaching oneself to something higher and attaching oneself to a community to, to the desirable whole kind of, ideal. Right, right. Mm. There's there's a kind of transcendence uh, that's involved there. And I, I I show shoe advertisements over the course of the last 150 years, and they begin. Uh, in the 19th century, being informational, you can buy shoes from James H. Yeah. Johnson. And we have them for a reasonable price. And, right. And <laughs> early 20th century, you try to persuade people that these are good shoes, that these are um, uh, at a reasonable price and they're stylish and people are going to think that you're uh, good for wearing them. Um, by the middle of the 20th century, um, the shoe is not mentioned and you don't try to to convince people these are good shoes, you attach um, transcendent ideals like Just sex and you know um, freedom and domination and these sorts of things um, with uh, with the shoe. And so there's a, a famous advertisement of a woman lying on the floor, admiring a man's shoes, and the caption is, keep her where she belongs. Wow. Um, and then by the end yeah. of the 20th century, the shoe has gone completely, and you've got a Nike swoosh and something that just says, write the future. And it's like, what, <laughs> Sounds what, religious, what, what it? is even being advertised here? Yeah, so, um, so there's this whole sense now in which the material object has disappeared. Mm -hmm. And what it's about really are these much higher kind of uh, aspirations to transcendence and and spiritual. Uh, One of the things I teach is uh, evangelization. And I was trying to, I used a Coca-Cola ad 
to to show that they had these people drinking coke and everything's rosy you've got lots of beautiful people around you it's a part life's a party you say it's no good promising people heaven because they get that promise in a coke ad yeah and, and you've got to actually demonstrate that there's something different here because we're constantly being lied to by advertisements they're selling us this idea which we know isn't true Right. It doesn't really matter. I mean, even if people know that it's a lie, um, there's this aspiration to transcendence that that it promises to fulfill. I mean, it, it's the same sort of thing that's going on in politics right now in, in the U.S. A lot of people will acknowledge that uh, Donald Trump doesn't tell the truth, but they like the fact that he invents his own reality. Right. So it doesn't matter that um, that he tells lies all the time. One of the things that people like about him is that he lies a lot. That he he creates his own reality, <laughs> and that kind of gives them license to create their own reality as well. One one American once told me that yeah, we know he lies, but we they all lie. He's just more honest about his lying. <laughs> I just don't know what to do with that. <laughs> um, one of the um, common experiences I have after shopping is buyer's remorse. So, um, and and just for the sake of our listeners, buyer's remorse is that that is that moment where you suddenly have um, an immense regret at buying this specific item. But it seems to me that what you're saying is that buyer's remorse is not an anomaly of the system. It's actually built into uh, the the infrastructure of uh, uh, so the shop, the shop wants you. The shop wants me to actually regret my bad choices, so that I can actually correct that with, with the it. next purchase. Oh, at there's least. no question about it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Dissatisfaction is. It, there was a, a leaked memo from the marketing department of General Motors somewhere a few decades ago, which talked about the organized creation of dissatisfaction, and it was in reference to changing car models every year. Um, at the time, the technology was not moving fast enough that you really needed to come out with a new car model every year. But the organized creation of dissatisfaction means that you couldn't have, you couldn't be satisfied with last year's car. You need whatever's new. And so that kind of dynamic, I think, works throughout uh, the consumer society. It's, it's absolutely built into the, built into the system. Mm. It's certainly built into the music industry and to to any kind of image of fashion industry, but seeing it in cars and you know even in um, vacuum cleaners and all kinds of other stuff, you see every, the new model each year. Oh, that was yeah, last year's model, and they yeah. almost have to clear the models every year. This co consumerism, though, that seems to be pragmatic. And so, can I put to you that some people would say that's just purely a pragmatic um, profit-making exercise? It's got nothing to do with religion whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I just don't think that's true at all. So um, what would your argument be? <laughs> so I teach a course on um, Christianity and consumerism. And one of the things that we do is we read uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, next to Milton Friedman, a famous uh, neoliberal uh, economist, won the Nobel Prize and so on. And what you see there is just a very fundamentally different account of desire that um, Friedman tells a story of people um, having spontaneous desires that come from within them. It doesn't really matter where they come from. Uh, and then economic activity is a kind of rational pursuit of, um, of those desires. And Augustine has what I think is a much more realistic view of desire and one which is reinforced by psychology that there are all these kind of unconscious um, impulses 
both from within and without the person that are tugging you in different directions. And desire is a, a socially created uh, thing. It's not something that just sort of spontaneously wells up uh, within the individual person. And so what you get there then is something which is completely tied up with Augustine's view of God, right? That God is that force that is within and without us that is kind of tugging us in a direction that's going to be satis- that's going to satisfy us as opposed to um, merely having uh, desires within us that need to be satisfied no matter what they are it doesn't right. we're, we're kind of agnostic about whether these are positive desires or not if, if we say that like social pressure can create desires Hmm. surely they still have to be a, a kind of manipulation of something that's genuine in us. So, for example, a lot of adver- advertising manipulates me to say, you're not sexy enough, you're not cool enough, you're not successful enough. And that's a, a you, you could call it a created desire in me to go and buy a particular watch or a particular brand of cologne or something. But it's still, they're manipulating a genuine desire for me to fit into community, to be, to to be respected, to right. you know, those kinds of things. They're actual human goods, aren't they? I mean, those things. And they're just simply twisting them to serve their economic purpose. Right. Augustine could not have said it better than you just said it, actually. He right. prob- probably did say it better <laughs> than you <laughs> said it. <laughs> but but uh, thank you. But the... Um, but that's what you're saying. That there's a, even if it's a manufactured desire, it's still a manu- It's still a twisting, or if you like, a co-opting of an, an actual good desire. Right. That's right. Yeah. Augustine talks about how vice imitates virtue. Right. Right. Um, that we kill one another out of love, and this is a kind of um, uh, a, a backhanded way of worshiping God. That we're actually in search of. Look, looking for love in all the wrong places, right. as the old song goes. Yeah. <laughs> and in all wrong ways, too. That's right. Yeah. So, um, and that, I mean, he does talk about that in terms of sin. He says sin is not, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning going, what evil can I do today? Right. They, you they, they, <laughs> <laughs> Well, nobody but Matt. Right? <laughs> they wake up and think, "What? I I want to achieve this good. And the, the, I think he, the moral evil that he talks about is where we are prepared to sacrifice or harm one of the goods in order to achieve another one. Right. So, and, yeah. and the uh, to, to be morally good, he says, we have to uphold them all. It's getting more difficult when uh, lots of these goods are being twisted and thrown at us and, and presented with not, as, as the nice juicy apples in the garden. Mm-hmm. But we probably should um, begin to wrap it up. Thank you for being with us, um, Bill. It's been a pleasure to talk. Um, that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking, arguing with your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe to our podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, what you'd like us to discuss in future by dropping us a line at info at thiscatholiclife.com.au. Or you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or Discord, all the usual podcast apps. Be sure to write us a review on iTunes. Remember, you have to be signed in uh, just to help other people find our podcasts. And remember, this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast, and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Matt, it's time for shout outs. Who would you like to say hello to today? I would like to say hello to um, the editors of Makrina magazine. It's a new magazine that is um, coming out, or rather has come out, looking at um, uh, philosophical issues from a Christian's perspective. Um, the uh, first embod- uh, issue on embodiment has just recently come out and they are currently uh, doing a call for papers for their second edition. So just a, a quick hello to Macrina Magazine. Cool. Bill, anyone you'd like to say hello to? 
I'd like to say hello to my wife, Tracy, and my three boys, Finian, Declan, and Eamon. We all visited Australia together uh, when the boys were little in 2006 and have uh, tremendously fond uh, memories of that time there. So I'm going to bring some Tim Tams and some Lamingtons home for them. And uh, I can't wait to see them. Uh, I've noticed that when Americans go back, they take Tim Tams and Ice Fobos and Lamingtons. They don't tend to take Vegemite. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to This Catholic Life. (laughs) 